up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Armchair Producers, episode 75. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, with a proper camera again. And I'm here, joined by the eternal, the masterful Mr. Travis Croft. How are you today? I am uh, fine and dandy. We're week three of uh, lockdown here in the big smoke. Um, uh, part two. Part two. So, you know it's going to be three, Part two, chapter three. Um, we're almost entering, we're entering the second act. Because um, <laughs> we have to overcome the challenge before we, we the Empire, stri- truly, the Empire strikes back of lockdowns. <laughs> See, now, I've seen that meme going around of it's like 2020, written by Stephen King, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Now, my thought on that is Stephen King is not great at making endings, and they're always kind of a little boring. So maybe that's a future telling of the second half of 2020? I think that's mis- misplaced. I would say 2020 has been written directed by David Lynch. Because it's been fucking weird. Fair. Fair. My favourite meme going around at the moment is the one from Cabin in the Woods. Um, you know, like, you know, who, who had murder hornets for July, you know? <laughs> I, I did see... Um... A uh, friend of the show, Richard Dowson, he posted a, an article about some, um, I think it was some schoolgirls in India who have spotted an asteroid that's making its way towards Earth. Yeah. <laughs> because it asteroids. Um, you know, we're, we're still soldiering on. Everyone's still going a little bit more crazy day after day, week after week, as we see more and more insanity. Well, I'm in the middle of moving house, so I'm actually kind of lucky because I'm allowed to. I, I can go out and drive up the road for 15 minutes to That's my new true. place, and I have a very legitimate excuse to be out and about. So it's actually kind of um, yeah, just going for a drive for 10 minutes is um, is refreshing. As I always say, I live in a small apartment here in a fancy pants suburb of Melbourne, and I never plan to spend 23 hours a day in here. Yeah, that was not the intention of moving there. It's like, oh, yeah, you can go to the cinema, there's all the pubs, there's the MCG. No, no, no. Yeah, I've been to the MCG once since I moved here. <laughs> it's been great timing, right? <laughs> it was, I have been to many concerts. So like, I had all these concerts lined up for the first half of the year. And the second half to some degree. Right. And, of course, they've all been cancelled. And, like, the whole appeal was you can, from my place, you can walk to it. Mm. a lot of the time. That's <laughs> half a reason I'm moving. I'm like, they're not coming back. So, um, you know, Even no time soon. The, the sidelines, you know, you had the um, swimming pool on the roof kind of thing. And I'm guessing that wasn't open either. That was open for about six weeks in, in the, uh, what we call the interregnum period between <laughs> lockdown one and two. So, the, uh, the, truly, the uh, Star Wars Christmas special. Of non lockdowns. <laughs> it was that much of a clusterfuck. Yeah. Oh, well, ladies and gentlemen, I know that you've all joined in. I don't even know if there's actually anyone live, but, you know, hello, and I'm just going to pretend at the very least. Um, we are continuing our chain events, and last week we talked about the delightful Sleepy Hollow. And we chose to treat ourselves again, didn't we? Yes, we did. We connected Casper Van Dyne from Sleepy Hollow, where he played Brom and met uh, a heroic, untimely Ben. And we are going to his big breakout movie. If he uh, ever had one. Well, 
This was kind of his breakout movie that led to not much else high profile. Except it, 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 This is his breakout movie in the same way that uh, John Carter was the breakout movie of whoever that guy was who played John Carter. Taylor Kick. Exactly. I like that movie. I like that movie too. There's nothing wrong with that movie. I'm just saying it. Like, it's kind of the... Um... Okay, fair, 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 fair. But, uh, yes, we go on to the Paul Verhoeven classic satire, Starship Troopers. And this was... We, we've spoiled ourselves for a couple of weeks in a, in a row now. We, we both enjoyed Hudson Fork. Um, we both, to certain elements of the right word, enjoyed King Comedy. We um, loved Rupert Allen I. Sleepy Hollow, and this. So we are due for another stinker, and I have got the perfect one lined up. But we'll talk oh, about that soon. But Starship Troopers, we usually get cracking onto it. So yes. we actually got someone in the chat for the first time. So that's a oh. in, over in Twitch. Hello to Lord Bagel seventy eight. Great username. Um, <laughs> I can only imagine you stumbled across this podcast and what the fuck am I watching? Um, <laughs> welcome. We make no apologies. Um, <laughs> Um, talking uh, Starship Troopers. So this is the 1997 action-adventure sci-fi directed by Paul Verhoeven. Humans in a fascist, militaristic future wage war with giant alien bugs. Yeah. Uh, it is, of course, written uh, by Edward Neumeyer based on the Robert Heinlein uh, story, which I'm, I was tempted to try and find a copy to read it for this week, but I doubted I'd have the attention span to get through it in a week. <laughs> uh, apparently Verhoeven only ever finished about a quarter of it and thought it was boring and then asked the writer, <laughs> just tell me what happened. Um, uh, but, you know, that that's an interesting way. It's, at least he wasn't, I guess, you know, um, held prisoner by the ideas of a book because I that's think the, the film's quite different from what I've read. Um, as you said, it stars Casper Van Dien as the our protagonist, Johnny Rico, with the fucking jaw of a century, like that jawline. Oh that, my God. That's a superhero jawline. It is. It, it'd probably be being talked about in superhero terms if it was the, uh, you know, 15 years later. Um, <laughs> we also have uh, Denise Richards um, playing the role of Carmen. Yep. Uh, we have Jake Busey, one of our favorites, Ace Levy, Dina Meyer playing Dizzy Flores, Doogie Howser, Neil Patrick Harris as Carl. Clancy Brown's in there. Uh, Michael Ironside as uh, uh, Mr. Ratchak. Um, it's um, it's a bit of a motley crew of a cast because for a film that was rumored to cost about $105 million in 1997, um, that's not cheap. That's an expensive movie in the late 90s. Yeah, There's yeah. no names in here. Not any sort of like surefire... Guaranteed revenue. I mean, we talked about it in the kind of preamble um, about Starship Troopers last week that most of the the, the stars of the show come, come from like TV and like that. Um, hi, Gloria. Thanks for joining in. Um, she's just over on Facebook. Um, we're just talking about Starship Troopers and how the the main characters are essentially people that were popped from uh, TV star and didn't really have much in the way of movie um, cachet, I would say, before this. And we had Jake Boosley and sort of like stalwarts of cinema of Michael Ironside and Clancy Brown in glorified cameos, basically. 
Uh, I mean, Denise Richards, some people might go with Denise Richards. She's a bit of a star. Um, but uh, they're probably forgetting it. her star rose after this film. Yeah. She was in the James Bond film, Wild Things, etc. came after Starship Troopers. She was probably, I think from memory, she was mainly a model before this film. Um, just taking you, a quick look. Uh, Johnny, uh, sorry, Casper uh, Van Dien and Dina Meyer, if not mistaken, came from the world of uh, 90210. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris, of course, best known before this for the Doogie Howser TV series. Of course, interesting thing, Denise Richards appeared in a Doogie Howser episode. There you go. That's probably how it happened. Uh, he's gone mm-hmm. into bigger and better things since. Patrick Muldoon, who plays Xander, yeah. best known for Melrose Place. Yeah. Um, I, from what I, as I said last week, it's a wonderful Joe Blow. Uh, what the fuck happened to this movie episode on YouTube yeah. about which I went back and watched last night, and um, I thought to myself maybe. Maybe they, they cast TV actors because of budget concerns. We're going to spend all this money on special effects. We get cheap actors in. Apparently, according to the Joe Blow article, um, it was more a case of the actor in terms of... Uh, the Hoven went out and said, I want to find actors of a certain age range to play these young, you know, these young characters. And found yeah. either they were unavailable or he just didn't find anybody he liked who fit those age groups and roles. Yeah. Um, he, the word is he did go for Mucky Mark Warburg as his first choice for Johnny Rico. Oh, that would have been weird. I think that yeah, could have worked. I think Mark it could Warburg, have worked. He's doing some interesting stuff in the late nineties. Um, but apart from that, apparently he just couldn't find anyone he liked, and so he was sort of forced in that sense to then look at characters from TV, which. Uh, again, the article from Joe Blue makes a wonderful point that in the, these days, you go, well, uh, TV actors, they make the crossover all the time. It's yeah. a more fluid line between TV and film today. Yeah. And in the late 90s, it was definitely, a, there was a, you know, it was a big, beautiful wall between the two. Um, and, you know, very rarely did people, you know, cross over. Um, yeah. And if once you made movies, you didn't go back. Um, so it actually made the film in a way... I remember at the time it looked a bit cheaper and nastier because you had you know, TV actors and stuff in there. The other part that always bothered me was the fact that they're all about 10 years older than the characters they're actually playing. It's 90210 rules. I mean, Johnny Rico, so Casper Van Dien was 27, 28 when this was made. Um, Denise Richards is in her mid-20s. I think Xander Burke was about the same age, 27, 28. So they all look, there's no way in fucking hell that anyone ever buy these as teenagers. Another controversial point, of course, is that it's they are all from Buenos Aires in uh, Argentina, mm-hmm. and they're white and sour cream. Yep. And I think, I think that, that is a deliberate choice. With, sort of like, the politics of a film? Yeah. Um, so I guess we should probably touch on the politics of a film. If you anybody has seen the film, the... Um, Nazis! The Nazis in space! <laughs> um, there's a musical in that. Um, um, my favorite part of a Muppet show used to be pigs in space. Um, but Nazis in space has a nice ring to it. Um, so Heinlein, Robert Heinlein was, um, a big admirer of the military. Uh, and like I said, I haven't read the actual original book, but uh, I understand the fascistic edge was there in the original source material. And I think, uh, Verhoeven has seen that. And really decided, and sort of from what I understand, there was a struggle about how exactly to treat that in in the story. Do you just kind of wipe that out and just go for a generic space mm. action film, or 
do you what do what they did in this case? They lent into it. Mm. Um, they just sort of said, okay, well, it's there. Let's just talk about it. Let's let's make it a parody. So the satire of um, fascism is is steep. This film is steeped in it. Yeah, and I think the fact they've cast Nazi poster boy actors um, uh, is a little bit choice as a result. And it is. A bit, yeah. I think I think Casper Van Dien had his backstory if his character was uh, the um, descendant of like a, you know a Nazi war criminals who fled there at the end of the war. <laughs> um, but it's it's very evident. I, I think I noticed that a bit when I when it first came out in the nineties, but I think it's even more noticeable now. I think it's probably more prescient now mm. but you know the uniforms are so oh yeah. it's so Especially nice the gestapo level general style but neil patrick harris looks like a member of a gestapo ss yeah. kind of yeah but the uniforms the um the the philosophy espoused in, in the teacher says you know the failure of democracy you know uh, violence is the ultimate authority from which all other authority springs you know and mm-hmm. um it, it, it's 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 really there and it's really in your face. And I think in 97, I just don't think people got it. I don't think people realised that this was shooting to be a satire or parody. Certainly not to the level that it's actually designed for. Because I, I feel like that that time period, you know, 97, this was two years before Star Wars returned to cinema with <clears throat> The Phantom Menace. But people were kind of starving for that next science fiction monster. And, you know, this, is, this ticks a lot of those boxes. A lot of action. It's got a handsome young cast. It's got, at the time, really cutting-edge um, alien CGI and things like that. It kind of went along at a lickety-split place. Um, Paul Verhoeven has had generally a pretty consistent career. It had a lot going for it, but then this style choice was like, oh, um, I, I don't get it. I, I think mean, was, anyone who's seen Verhoeven's films before this, though, should, I mean, I, I wonder, I, I was I was young, I was, how was I? I was, I was 19, 20 yeah. in 1997, so, um, and I think, yeah, when you think of, when you look back at his earlier films, a film like Robocop, it's dripping with subtext. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, people like that was what the remake of robocop got wrong i mean it was apart from being you know pg-13 rated yeah um it was just it kind of didn't get that that half the thing that made robocop some cool was the fucking the subtext the, mm. the really sly satire at you know at, at society it was almost like a george romero film in a way like yeah you look at dawn of the dead and i go it's just a zombie film like no 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 there's all sorts of things going on under the surface if you stop and think about what he's actually doing in that film and in Robocop, it's um, it, it is it's it's really taking a stab at a lot of different parts of society. But Verhoeven had something to say about, um, and I think it was truly glorious to do that in a big budget action Hollywood film. Mm. He did it kind of to a lesser extent in Total Recall, I think. But then again, it's a little bit subversive, and it's a Philip K. Dick story, and that's not really straight ahead science fiction. Yeah, it's it, it always this kind of big trust of, of governments and things like that. Yeah. So this is what Verhoeven does really fucking well. Um, so, you know, why people sort of missed that in the, in the 90s was kind of a mystery to me, but um, it, it really plays well today, like especially the whole, um, you know, we break net now to take you live to such and such, and, you know, yeah. would, would you, you like, like to know more? more? That's um, 
it, that, and you know, given the state of the world today and, and, and the rise again of fascism to some degree, yeah, um, you got one in the White House. Um, so you know, it's <laughs> it's it it, it it really feels a lot more um, current and fresh in that sense. But I would just say, pull out. You mentioned cutting a set of special effects. Jeez, I think they hold up incredibly well. Twenty three years later, yeah. I mean, it, it's subtle details that really that show the age of it, like some of the blending on the edges, it, it looks a little stand out -y. And like when they've got lots and lots of the insects kind of skittering around, it's kind of, all right, you can see they're not actually, they're not kicking up dust or anything, the smaller ones and that sort of stuff. There's those little details that would just make it that little bit more current, I guess. I mean, for for a twenty three year old, most not too many twenty three year old films have special effects hold up that well. Yeah. So, it, and, creature effects are brilliant. Yeah, they're fantastic. I love the the design of all of the the bugs. They they all look really cool. They're unique. They're different. And the brain bug at the end is just fantastic horror monster kind of creature. Just it. it the, the way they kind of reveal it, it's got those kind of like moth-like bits that keep glittering here, and then that it's almost pseudo-sexual. Oh, absolutely! The, the, the brain bug in particular could have been designed by H.R. Geiger. I mean, yeah. um, it, there's absolutely no. Um, that's not by mistake, right? Yeah. The, the, the the sexual connotations of the design of that bug. It, it wasn't done by accident. That, that was a very deliberate choice. Yeah. Um, and and especially some of the that final scene where they're probing said braid bug, which they have a censored. <laughs> again, that was not by mistake. That was not just. That was a very deliberate choice by the director. Um, what What do you think? So we've talked about like we special effects hold up pretty well. The story feels really fresh and 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 prescient considering the time. What do you think of the performances? I think overall they're pretty good, actually. Um, I think Casper Van Dyne's kind of um, his, his Johnny Rico's character arc is kind of cool, and he generally generally plays quite well for comedy. The fact that he fails and fails upwards every time, like he he does nothing spectacular throughout the whole movie. It's just through other people dying and him just being kicked off I'm like okay you're next do it and then the, the the way that he kind of just rolls with it and then kind of it's it's missed throughout the whole whole thing start middle and end it's sort of like uh service guaranteed citizenship there's that kind of connection with his story and kind of the kind of mindless mindless drone kind of attitude behind it that he plays very well um i feel like Denise richard's character is possibly the weakest just because it's not as filled out and it's a little bit more we really only check in with her occasionally she's almost a uh, i know one of the things verhoeven did in his film that was uh, was quite interesting was they kind of reversed the, the gender dynamic of a particular of you know what would normally happen in a war film in the sense that in this case it's the guy who follows the girl mm. into into a particular situation and then basically has to give up his life to try and follow his his dreams to follow her. Which yeah. is an interesting, you know, reversal from the, the general meme or the um, the way things would normally work. Absolutely. But I think that she, her character, where you're right, was kind of only really there. She would sort of show up to sort of take Johnny from situation A to situation B. Yes. 
Absolutely. I really enjoyed, um, I suppose. I always remember, funny, um, I remember when I, this was, I liked this film when it came out. Mm. Um, I remember having, taping this off TV, I think in the late 90s and watching it regularly with my housemates. Um, and that line at the end, it's okay, Johnny, because I got to have you. Um, <laughs> you know, and we're kind of like, oh my God, that writing is so bad. Like, how can, yeah, you know, how can you keep a straight line delivering those kind of cheesy lines? But I think, again, in hindsight, I think it's a very deliberate choice to, to be that kind of hokey writing. Is 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 he's, Verhoeven's capable of significantly better than that? He didn't write it, no. um, but uh, this is the same writer who wrote Robocop. Yeah, uh, um, so I, it, I think it works. It's it's like with, like that line is so hokey and so cheesy. It's it is in itself a, a satire of so many bloody tragic deaths. Where it's like, oh, they finally got together and then they die. That sort of stuff. And it's like the the way that they just turn the screaming of murder into a, a gag line, basically. <laughs> that, that's what they do. It's almost like, um, at times, the characters almost remind me of a, a high school film, right? Like, almost like a, it's like a high school film meets a war film. Yeah. It's almost like a, it's like almost the characters almost remind me of characters who would fit into something like American Graffiti. Yeah. You know, like hot riding and getting a malt after school after the game, you know, like, um, and that kind of writing from someone, you know, the kind of lines and the, the dynamics between the characters would fit, click in quite nicely into a high school film. Yeah. Um, but if you sort of take in this, this dynamic and these characters into a war film, which is an interesting way of doing it, and uh, I, that just popped into my head because I was trying to think of a way to have a hokey lines. I can see how they bother people. Yeah. But maybe if you, like, maybe it's just because I've seen it a lot now. Mm. And every time you sort of go, no, actually, it was kind of really makes sense if the, if the dynamic the characters have had all the way through the film. Um, and I think the idea, I think I've read it again from Verhoeven, has sort of said, these people live in a fascist utopia, but they don't know it. Yeah. Uh, this is all they know. So, again, it's almost a utopian kind of attitude of, you know, these characters. It's... You, the, the way that you said this high school movie, it's it's very true. It's almost as if this is people doing a school play about moments in the Great War against the Bugs. And it's, it's like, the, like the 16 year olds are performing it and they're going, oh, yeah, this is, this is really deep, meaningful um, dialogue and, and this is really serious. And it's like, no, mm, it's not. <laughs> It's, yeah, I remember smirking quite a, knowingly smirking at it, going, oh, come on, you can do better than that. But The, the style versus kind of connection is almost like the reverse of um, Ryan Johnson's Brick, where it's set in a high school, but it's all about kind of drugs, and it's a detective story, and it makes being in school way more dark and gloomy and um, noir than it's going to traditionally be, with the language that they use in that being kind of archaic slash classic Humphrey Bogart era detective noir kind of thing. But in this look of high school, they've kind of done a reverse in this and gone, oh yeah, this is a war movie, but everything is through the eyes of a 15 year old. Yeah, who happens to look like they're 28. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, uh, I, um, I, I uh, still enjoy it every bit as much now mm. as I do the first time I saw it, I think. Uh, oh, it's a little bit predictable, I guess, in parts, but, like, I still... I feel like I find something fresh in it every time. 
there's other there's stuff going on underneath yeah. the surface of this film that like i said um i i don't think that the the the, the nazi stuff really kind of evoked quite the same feeling of me 20 years ago as it does today mm. um i think I, I think the dialogue actually kind of works a lot better now when you think about it as i did 20 years ago yeah. um and again like i said last night i was watching closely with special effects going come on like we said we said it last week you know sleepy hollow held up pretty well because it mm. looked like it was shot in the studio which it was mm. um surely starship troopers can't pull that off but i think for the most part it, it did as well so yeah. uh, i think this is it for a film that you know 23 years ago got a 51 on metacritic yeah uh it's got a 7.2 on imdb so i think the audience like it a bit better than that I think it's aged incredibly well, and I think it's a forgotten classic. I think this, um, I mean, the Hoban had, a, again, he had a hell of a run coming mm. into this film. Um, apart, well, in a way, a quite remarkable run. Um, if you consider, you know, uh, what he'd done immediately prior to this was Showgirls. Um, but, I mean, he's come from... Um, He's come from Robocop into Total Recall into Basic Instinct mm-hmm. into Showgirls into Starship Troopers. That's a pretty good run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, even Showgirls has its charms. Sorry? And then he followed up with Hollow Man. Hollow Man, which is garbage. I enjoy that movie. It's garbage. <laughs> it's, You're just wrong. It's, um, for his last Hollywood film, it was a disappointment. <laughs> But he still does some interesting stuff. If you're a, if you if you listen to this and go, hey, if you haven't seen, I can just say if you haven't seen Starship Troopers, if you're a bit younger, perhaps, um, I, I recommend it. Uh, I think we both recommend it as a, as a really decent action film if you want to just turn your brain off and watch a bunch of cool, good-looking people shoot, um, you know, virtual bugs, and yes, it's yes. fine. If you want to go a little deeper, there's plenty to dig up there. Uh, if you want to go into his back catalogue, again, I would highly recommend Robocop and Total Recall. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure Basic Instinct holds up as well as it did at the time, but, you know, it's been a long time since I saw it. Yeah. I would say, though, if you want to jump forward in his catalogue, Black Hawk 2006 is fucking incredible. He's going back right. to making films in Europe. Um, yeah. And probably one thing I forgot to mention here is he grew up in the Netherlands while it was being occupied by the Nazis in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So he uh, was somebody who had a definite opinion about Nazis. I think at the time there was actually a point of view that this film glorified fascism. I remember that, yeah. I remember people kind of getting really disturbed and worried about it because it was this, um, well, people were wrongly kind of saying that it glorified that the, the Nazi regime and um, fascism and all of that stuff. Like, no, that's, that's the same people that kind of got offended by the life of Brian. Oh, it's got connections to something that I have an opinion about, so it must be all against it. Well, and it's, it's again, people it. have missed the satire. Yes. They've just seen, they look at it, they look at it on the surface, there are a bunch of people, white people in Nazi uniforms, shooting bugs, it must be saying fascism's cool. Mm. Um, and yeah, they've just missed the subtext there, which is unfortunate. And I, again, maybe it was just a, a symptom of a time. Um, in the sense that if you think of politically the world in 1997, very, very different place, you know, like it seemed like a, a distant, happily forgotten memory of the idea that people thought fascism was a good idea. And, you know, here we are 23 years ago and it's made a comeback. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so, and I think, um, 
I think European filmmakers like Verhoeven had an, had that idea that this is something mm. that continue needed to be continued to be talked about. Yeah, and I, maybe if maybe if there's anybody watching, you're thinking of going far too deep um, <laughs> on a popcorn film, but um, I, I don't think I am. I think this is, is, he was definitely making a statement with this, mm-hmm. and I think only a European filmmaker would have done so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part of the interesting story is how the fuck did this get made? Yeah, I. I don't know. It always seems like every year there's one movie that comes out that generally underperforms, but it's actually really good. And you, a couple of years after the fact, you look at it and say, "How did this get made? Who, who, who momentarily had power at one of these big studios to kind of go, yeah, I'm not, I know I'm not going to be here long, so I'm going to bring like that.'" Um, the Joe Blow video posits the idea that from Verhoeven that, um, that TriStar Pictures who made this uh, and Sony were going through a number of different regime changes mm. at the time during this was in production. And as you said, by the time one regime started to get their head around what I was making, they were gone. Yeah. <laughs> and so he sort of feels like he just snuck it in under the radar. Everyone just like, well, we spent a lot of money on it. We might as well let him finish it. Um, this film was pretty unsuccessful. Um, yeah. It made uh, something like $150 million total worldwide. Uh, I think it made, eventually, did reasonably well on home video, but were a number of sequels. Exactly, and there's um, the games after. The game, there's two animated sequels. Yeah, so it might not have done well, this movie, on its own in its own initial run, but it spawned clearly something that that had an audience. What do you think? Would Would you see a remake? Hmm. I can imagine that they probably would do some kind of remake, but I do not think it would be used for any kind of satire. I think that the idea that particularly how generally liberal um, Hollywood is, the idea of making a movie that even satirically is highlighting fascism as the way of life, they would not. They, they, they wouldn't kind of see the money in that. I think they would kind of put it as something far more, all right, this is a generic sci-fi movie. Um, it's got a little bit of that. Like if, you know, what? if um, like James Gunn was to direct a remake of this, maybe it would have a bit more of that bite. But otherwise, I think it would just be a schlocky, mindless action movie set in space. I tend to agree. Um, I think most films that get by with their satire have, and if they've been remade, have had their satire surgically removed mm. and extra action inserted. I'm talk. I'm thinking here the Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead, which I'm a fan of. I like mm. it, but I mean, Zack Snyder doesn't do satire. He doesn't do no. subtext. He does explosions and Martha. Why did you say my name? <laughs> um, and I'm thinking also the Robocop reboot from a few years ago, which. Again, yeah. like I said, had any sense of that was satire or just taken out and, and made into a generic action film. Neither of those were... Either Robocop was particularly poorly received. I think Dawn of the Dead kind of snuck through. But, mm. um, yeah, I, I don't know that it would work quite as well. Making a film with Nazis in it. Like, I mean, um, when, when when the Wolfenstein thing came out, the, the sequel, the 
came out a couple of years ago, the new Colossus. Yeah. And there were like all these people commenting on um, Bethesda's Facebook post going, oh, okay, so people have a slightly different opinion and now it's okay to go around and shoot them. You know, like, okay, when did they, when did shooting Nazis become a bad thing, right? Yeah. Like, it's I remember there was an interview with Pete Hines, one of the creative guys at Bethesda, and he went, fuck Nazis, <laughs> shoot them. <laughs> It's a national pastime. Yes. For us and the United America, for most of the Western world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like just a couple of years ago, people were like, oh, okay, so now it's okay to hate on them just because they're different. Like, so, I mean, the whole idea of, yeah, of sticking guys in, in sort of Nazi inspired uniforms in, a, in an action film would. Um, and of course, the fact it didn't do very well at the time um, maybe yeah. would uh, hold people back. But Starship Troopers, I think it's two thumbs up from us. I think so, yes. Where absolutely. are we going? Where are you taking me with Michael Ironside? Michael Ironside, a man who has, as I say, just looking at his filmography, as an actor, he's got 260 credits. He's got so much to choose from, but we have had some good movies in this run. So I am going to be going back to a movie that I cannot remember, but I know that I've watched it twice. I seem to have blocked it out of my memory. We are going through a true crap classic, Highlander 2, The Quickening. Oh, I have yeah. seen this, actually. I saw this. Uh, they had a double feature a couple of years ago at the cinema. Yeah. This has got the wrestling in it. Yep. This is uh, the sequel to the generally okay Highlander. Highlander 1 made great because of Sean Connery and because of the other... Um, uh, cameo, extended cameo from Starship Troopers of um, Clancy Brown. But this is the sequel uh, from 1991. In the future, Highlander Connor McLeod must prevent the destruction of Earth under an anti-ozone shield. I mean, the obvious good news story um, from having to watch um, this piece of shit uh, next week, I recall seeing it in the cinema and almost falling asleep. Um, <laughs> is the fact that John C. McGinley is in this film? He is, and that means a week after we could go to Office Space. <gasps> oh. What is it you think you would say you actually do here? Um, I did, I'm a Michael Bolton fan. I, I like, I love it. No, I'm, I think though that would be an obvious choice, um, and. Uh, um, but we'll wait and see whether we go with the obvious choice of something like Office Space Fire, uh, that, or, uh, do see, I try I and did, get one? I did have an idea that we would follow Christopher Lambert to the Fortress. Ah, shot in Queensland. Yeah. Though I, if you want to talk crap films, I was going to say, let's follow, uh, Sean Connery to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, we don't deserve that much pain. <laughs> But let's put us in Alan Moore territory, which would mean The Watchmen was on offer. Um, oh. uh, the movie, but um, I think, you know, well, we'll wait and see. I mean, yeah. if there's anybody watching. Yeah. Uh, and you've got a, a, a listing later, uh, Fry Brain Productions on Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, George is on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? The Fry Brain. The Fry Brain. At Evil Trav on Twitter for me. Um, you know, tweet us, Facebook us. Um, Any movies that somehow connect to Highlander to the quickening. If you've got a, if you've got a suggestion, uh, hopefully it's something that's actually been released in Australia. 
that's our mm -hmm. preferable choice. Um, yep. I watched uh, uh, Starship Troopers on YouTube, actually. The whole film is on YouTube. Uh, that may be illegal, but... Um, it was also on uh, Prime Video, I think it was. So... I'll um, get it on Apple TV. So uh, if, it's, if it's available legally, we prefer to view it legally. Uh, whether or not I viewed it legally, I didn't upload it to YouTube, so... Mm -hmm. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> what else has been happening in your world? Well, I have had to put a bit of a pause on my continuing going through a breaking bad, just because there's only so much maudlin that one can take at any one time. But I decided to go back to another highly regarded series that I have not watched the last three seasons of, I think. And that is the BBC-produced Sherlock starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. And three seasons sounds like a lot, but there's like two or three episodes a season, right? Yeah, there's um, only three episodes, but they're kind of feature-length episodes each. Uh, I've watched, I think, a number of these. I can't say I've watched... I can't know if I've watched it all, but mm. I found it pretty enjoyable. What do you think of it? Uh, so the first season and the second season are absolute masterpieces of how to tell a modern version of Sherlock and Benedict Cumberbatch is particularly good. Um, Martin Freeman, I'm still not exactly sold on him as a great actor. I think he's fine, he's likable, but whether or not he... To me, he he's not being John Watson, he's just being filling everything. And he's the audience, really. He's the audience's character of a person we follow through. Yeah, but I don't know. I just feel like it's maybe it's just the you know when you have a character as rich and popular and so beautifully played by Benedict Cumberbatch, comparing the audience a character, it's always going to be a bit of a weird disconnect, and it's going to feel like oh, why can't I be that guy? But you know, it, it's still really good. Everything about it is really great. But it has highlighted something to me, and it's a problem that I feel is echoed through pretty much every amateur or consultative detective TV series ever. Every great detective has got that kind of quirk that makes them particularly good at whatever it is they do. In Sherlock, he is kind of Asperger's high-functioning, um, that kind of disconnected kind of character. And they just depict that by kind of having like, text popping up on the screen and him just kind of doing almost like that virtual screen wiping stuff and he talks about his memory palace and that kind of thing, which is really cool. And it's sort of like, oh, that's cool. I like that. That's fun. But the fact that it keeps, it becomes the driving force behind why we like this character and why we are invested because it's that pop moment. Every time you use it, the, um, the comeback is never quite as high. It's always diminishing returns. So to counteract that, you always end up having to have this very interesting main villain. And Sherlock has got one of the greats of Moriarty and it's played very well. Um, shit. I've completely forgotten the guy's name. Uh, Something Scott, I think. Uh, I'm just going to quickly look that up. Um, doo -doo -doo. But it's 
highlights it to me. It's like a, I think of a film, a show like Columbo, where yeah. you keep a quirkiness and a sort of, oh, oh just, one, just, more just, one more question, please. And, you know, that became a whole thing. Of show. Or if you ever watched Law and Order, Criminal Intent, um, Vincent D'Onofrio's character, again, yeah. was like the semi, you know, uh, almost Rain Man-esque yeah. um, detective. And he had that sort of funky way of looking at people and, you know, doing his thing and asking questions, and that became the defining characteristic. Yeah, and there was a smattering of them that lasted a season or two from America. Like, there was um, Lie to Me with, um, what's his name, Tim Roth, and all these different ones where it's like, oh, he's got this quirk, and he's really good at detective work, and all that sort of stuff. Okay, yes, but there's a reason that only lasted one season or two seasons because... It runs out of excitement, and I've started into season three, and I'm feeling a li- it's a little tired, and it's like this. It's still all great. Everything is great, but there's not much truly fresh in it, and I get that that's kind of – that's my problem, I guess, with serialized detectives because they are, you know, based on character work. You – kind of have to keep on relying on that too much and then it ends up dying like uh the concepts of stuff like heroes or 24 or lost even the diminished returns for each of those seasons going on the simpsons is a prime example of that where every season after season eight or nine it's like okay they're treading over the same stuff and it's not as funny this time because i've seen it a thousand times already and that's the the movie that kind of stood out to me as something that kind of bucks the trend was Knives Out. Um, well, I mean, I, I felt like um, Daniel Craig's detective was very much a stereotypical detective in a lot of ways. I mean, maybe a little bit old school, a little bit more Poirot than uh, than Robert Garren or Sherlock or, or Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes. Um, but I don't think I have that problem that you have with these detectives. I, I, really? in, I find it, it's almost reassuring, and it's, you know, it's something you enjoy about. I enjoy about a character is you sort of, I mean, I'll pay it. It can be predictable. Um, I always used to think um, we talked a few weeks ago about the new Perry Mason reboot. Mm. Um, I always used to dislike the original Perry Mason show. Well, it wasn't really a detective, but. Um, his character would always end the same way. You know, Kerry Mason would start doing his his Perry Mason thing, and then the guy would be confessing. He'd have a guy on the stand, but like, oh, I did it. I tells you, and I'm glad I tells you. Every fucking time, it was like it was like watching a Hulk Hogan wrestling match. You know, <laughs> he might be getting he might be getting stomped, but you know how it's going to end. He's going to Hulk up, and he's going to win. So, I mean, you know, most of the time, I get it with a character. You know, you can start seeing him do their detective thing. You know they're gonna how it's probably gonna end up, but I, I still kind of enjoy that. I guess the hard part for me with Sherlock, and maybe why it was so pronounced with Sherlock, is because each episode is basically a film. I watched six films effectively of this character with basically one overarching story. That's a lot of stuff. Like I can't think of a single movie franchise where they've managed to freshness for those characters for six fucking films. No, well, especially not with the same actor involved without rebooting it halfway through or... Yeah. 
I mean, one might say Iron Man. Which one? Iron Man. I mean, Iron Man 2 wasn't great, but, I mean, Age of Ultron wasn't great, but that was still reasonable. That was still reasonable, and, you know, kudos to Iron Man 3 for trying to do something different. And I mean, Civil War was good, and then Avengers uh, Endgame and Infinity War were both pretty good, and Iron Man was a fairly central character in both those stories. But he wasn't particularly... The, the, I don't know. It, it was it was very sad. It was exactly what you wanted, which is for me that's annoying. That's been one of my bugbears, I guess. <laughs> but I have absolutely no problem giving the audience exactly what they want. I don't know what the audience wants. That's why I have a disconnect with them, <laughs> and, and, and that's probably why we're not the Russo brothers. That's true. <laughs> but liking the show I, I i it's been I, it's been a long time since i thought of it it seemed to be of its time um it kind of reminded me a little bit of the fuss about the doctor who series in the sense that you had these two young british guys in it who people thought were attractive and quirky well it's from a lot of the same people like um stephen moffat uh, took over after uh russell t davis kind of rebooted it with um chris eccleston um and mark gattis was very heavily involved in this not only as an actor but as a writer um they have a bunch of the same directors it's great to see paul mcginnon in there doing a lot of directing of those episodes he did one of my favorite little movies of lucky number 11 with josh hartner and bruce willis um he he knows how to do kind of those more intimate close things like gangster number one is awesome um so there's kind of vibe wise and production side of it yeah it definitely kind of feels a bit like nouveau doctor who for the current age but it's kind of grown up because mark gattis is a fucking smart man for one thing and he um incidentally is a spin-off he wrote a book called um lucifer box and it's really really good and i hope that it gets turned into a miniseries or something like that because it would be Fucking brilliant. Um, really Where brilliant. do you stand with this versus the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, version of Sherlock? I really like Robert Downey Jr.'s interpretation. I really enjoyed... Uh, oh, sorry. It seems to have gone slow motion for me. But I'll just keep on talking. Well, I can still I really hear you fine. Because... Well, <laughs> It, it was fresh, it was different, it was done for comedic element. Um, it Guy Ritchie's method of kind of filming things and then in slow motion and talking through each stage and then doing it in kind of real time. Um, that endears itself to me as a D&D player because every round, you know, everyone's turn is six seconds but it can take a couple of minutes to work out exactly what you're doing and stuff. So it kind of harkens back to that in my mind for, for that, where he's just playing out the scene and then you see it and it's just like <laughs> really quick. I really enjoyed it. I think that uh, Game of Shadows was a misstep. I think they tried to do too much too soon and wasted um, uh, Jared Harris as Moriarty. I thought he was great and... Um, What's her name? Uh, Rachel Rachel McAdams was um, uh, Adler, Irene Adler, and she was great. And to see her end the way she did was disappointing. But it was great. 
It was one of the few times where Jude Law played a good guy and I didn't mind. He's so much better being an arsehole. He makes a good arsehole. So was he an arsehole in Gattaca? I'm not sure. He was kind of a good guy, but he was an arsehole at the same time. Yeah. Great film. Um, well, I mean, how are you see, How are you watching Sherlock? Uh, that is on Stan. So Stan, um, that's the Australian service. If you're overseas, you'll have to figure it out for yourself. It'll see. generally, I would assume, because it was produced by BBC, it's probably going to be on iView or some equivalent as well. Maybe. I don't know if it aired on the ABC in Australia. Oh, Maybe okay. if you're looking in the States, it could be something like BBC America. Yeah, um, yeah, probably. Uh, but you know what am I? I'm not a psychic. I don't know how you what you figure it out. There's an internet there. We're just trying to tell. We're just trying to avoid getting sued. You know, that's just all. Um, well, I did my homework this week. Believe it or not, <gasps> the Norman Wisdom movie. The Norman Wisdom movie. What is it called? Um, um, I'm trying to think of the name of it now. Um, trouble in trouble store. In store. Trouble in store. I'm having trouble remembering it because I did watch it. This, I watched it this afternoon, and I'm having trouble remembering the name. That so memorable. That should be the giveaway uh, right then and right there. So I've never seen a Norman Wisdom film before. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of Norman Wisdom before two weeks ago when George mentioned him in the same breath as Sherry Lewis. Um, but having now watched a Norman Wisdom film, I can very much see the connection hmm. um, between the two actors. And um, interestingly, that the, uh, the British television program has decided also that uh, Saturday afternoon viewing required a black and white film with a physical comedian. Hmm. So Trouble in Store is a 1953, so it's almost 70 years old now, um, uh, film starring... Norman Wisdom. Norman, played by Norman Wisdom, <laughs> it was a stretch, um, he's working in the stockroom of a large London department store, but he has ambition. He wants to be a window dresser, dresser making up the public displays. While trying to fulfill his ambition, he falls in love with one of his shop girls. Together, they discover a plot to rob a store and somehow manage to foil the robbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, Norman's brand of comedy is very heavily influenced by the likes of a Charlie Chaplin, I would say, a Buster oh, yeah. Keaton, the silent yeah. era. Um, I think, and it's, it's as such a very, as I sort of said, a very physical, uh, slapstick, vaudeville-style comedy of yeah. uh, comedy of errors, knocking things over, putting himself in awkward situations, bumbling. I mean, he was uh, almost 40 <coughs> when this film was made. So... I wouldn't. I didn't actually go too deep into his filmography, but I wouldn't have been surprised to see him started in the, uh, you know, in the silent era, or at least on a stage, perhaps. Well, he started off. He was in the army, and apparently some kind of uh, prize boxer or something. He was pretty muscly, um, and he started late, but just just kept on going, essentially. Um, absolutely charming man. Got to see him live on stage, and that the fact that you said vaudeville, yeah, a hundred percent. When he's on stage, it was that kind of vaudevillian, Buster Keating kind of vibe to the whole thing. And he was into his sixties or seventies, and he'd still do backflips and flips all over the place. And he was doing his own stunts in all these movies and things. Like, wow, okay. <laughs> 
apparently, uh, here's a piece of useless trivia for you. Um, his 50s and 60s movies where his working class characters typically eventually overcame the oppressive management were the only Western movies allowed into Albania by the con- communist dictatorship of Enver en- en- Hoxha, who viewed them as a parable of a worker's struggle against capitalism. <laughs> uh, so it's a little factoid I discovered today. And I guess I can see that he's the, the working class everyman character, at least if I'm to take trouble in the store, as, as indicative of most of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the film is of its time, and mm. I'm being polite. Um, it's uh, it, it is um, yeah. He, he's basically a, a, a bumbling, goofy character who's constantly getting himself into trouble, and is such constantly getting himself fired. Um, at the same time, he, he seems to be one step forward, two steps backward for Norman in this film. He and he starts out by having his bicycle run over by a truck. At the same time, he ends up having his love interest character, love interests bicycle run over by a truck as well he's called to his new chief's office of a department store and he doesn't realize when the chief walks in that it's the new chief and so he goofs off and steals his um cigars and fucks around before realizing oh it's the new boss and getting fired and somehow stumbles across a plot to by gangsters to rob the store and and ends up in a fight in a toy the, the toy department that manages to foil the gangsters and mm-hmm. oh dude it was a it was a very long 82 minutes uh <laughs> it, you know it's um I, I mean you sort of said it the other week that um jerry lewis's material while brilliant uh in you know you or if you can see the influence of, 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 mm-hmm. the, of actor like jerry lewis and his importance yeah, film yeah. history. The film itself wasn't really watchable, and I recall like you sort of some of that was the sexual politics. Yeah, and then yeah. how like really not okay his character's behavior was from a twenty yeah. twenty perspective. This is Norman Wisdom is the 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 vanilla version potentially of that character. This is certainly nothing I think particularly problematic mm. in this, other than like, obviously you know the sexual politics, and this is. Yeah, fifty sexual politics, right? Like you know, yeah, yeah. Um, women are always seem to be in the subservient, or mostly in the subservient type roles, and yeah, yeah. In, in life, um, you know, uh, store assistants and secretaries and such. Um, and oh yes, sir, I'm ever so grateful to be working here today, sir. And oh, I do wish us luck today, sir. Um, it's so fucking British. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but it, uh, it it doesn't have that kind of problematic edge that I think you talked about. The Nutty Professor having, but at the same time, it's it's filmmaking of its time. It's mm. not. It's, it moves and somehow an eighty-two minute film moves at the snail's pace. Um, that the basic plot for what it is, there is no plot. Um, yeah. it, it's pretty, pretty, pretty fl- level uh, flyweight sort of plot. There's not a lot in it. And it's really just the whole thing is just basically a vehicle for Norman Wisdom to do Norman Wisdom. I had a feeling yeah. if I watched another Norman Wisdom film, he'd play exactly the same character. 100%. Every single one of his, like, the loved movies is essentially this storyline echoed. And it's just like, oh, he's a milkman this time. Oh, he's a police officer this time. Oh, he's doing this this time. I think it's just changed the setting and will just recycle essentially the, the, you know, the incompetent... Uh, austere, uh, pompous, mm-hmm. you know, upper-class management, you know, who fails to recognise Norman's true value and yada, yada, yada. And I think it does feed into... I've talked before on the show about one of my favourite um, 
comedian, TV comedians of a day these days is and has been for a while, Sasha Baron Cohen. Mm. And I always always used to enjoy the LEG show because I felt it tapped into a a British, a very great British yeah. tradition of getting pompous, self important um, people on a show and having the host make fun of them without Rim realizing they were the butt of a joke. Mm-hmm. Like I remember he had an episode where he had some. I always come back was that some environmentalist guys on, and they were talking. Well, well you know, the WWF is in the World Wildlife Fund. You know, well, hold on, hold on. What has Hulk Hogan got to do with this? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like he's, he's and again, I used to love the fact. I remember him doing his Borat before the movie. The mm. Borat character it was interviewing people at Oxford, and the people there were really outraged and offended by this outrageous character who was asking him such inappropriate questions. That, Again, they didn't realize that them being outraged and offended made them the butt of a joke. Yeah. And I think, and I'm going off topic here, but I'm coming back around. Um, <laughs> I feel like Norman Wisdom is, is, in a way, an earlier representation of that in the sense that the Norman Wisdom character is really playing up the pompous, you know, r- r- upper class twit of the manager as the butt of a joke, as well yeah. as, you know, Norman's bumbling and goofing off. He's making them look ridiculous. Yeah. And again, I think that's a great British tradition in comedy. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, I will not be going back for more. Well, you're a terrible person for doing that, but I completely understand. Um, just FYI, anybody else has found the idea of watching a normal wisdom film attractive, despite my um, evisceration uh, <laughs> of, a, of it. Um, you can find Trouble in Store for full movie is on YouTube. And I don't feel bad about it because Norman Wisdom's been dead for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> now, what else do you want to talk about? Um, I, now, you stop me if I talk about this last week because sometimes I, I, I forget things, believe it or not. But um, I've been watching uh, a new series that's airing on SBS in Australia, which is War of the Worlds. Oh, so yeah. this is obviously a, a reboot of the Steven Spielberg film. Uh, I'm just saying that. <laughs> you did that on purpose to get the reaction. <laughs> um, funny story. I actually went and saw the Steven Spielberg film. Was that 2005 or something? 2006? Um, and I was in the line at, uh, at Knife Point Cinema. And, um, and these two guys behind me, these two classic Western Suburbs, Wog Boys, Oh, Matt, what are you doing? How are you doing? It? Oh, I'm seeing a movie. Like, the very fact he had to ask the guy standing in line at Hoyt's, what are you doing here? I found kind of ridiculous. Oh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then they had a little conversation. It's like, oh, what are you here to see, Matt? It's like, oh, I'm seeing uh, War of the Worlds. Oh, Matt, what's that about? Oh, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it's based on a true story, eh? Um, oh, no. That is not, it is 100% a real story. Um, oh. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't joking. Um, now, yeah, maybe it was one of those things like a Men in Black where we had our memories erased. I don't know. Um, yeah, you are referring to Gabriel Byrne? I am referring to the 2019 Gabriel Byrne series. Now, I believe it was one from the BBC a year mm. or two earlier. Don't quote me on that. But it's it's been um, it's been adapted many times, yeah, obviously. Yeah. It's based on the H.G. Wells novel. Um, and uh, so far, you know, this is a an episodic one. This is not a film. There are sixteen episodes. Uh, they are unfortunately showing it episode by episode. 
Um, and I am up to uh, episode four, I think. Yeah. Okay. And um, it's very, very tempting to go off and download the whole series because I'm pretty sure it's aired overseas, but I, I can have it all at once. But I'm letting him string me along so I've got something new to watch each weekend because there's nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> now, this is a European production, I think it's fair to say. Um, it's set in Europe, fortunately. Um, uh, and uh, mainly in the, in and around the UK and, and France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we follow a disparate group of, I guess one might call survivors of the, the war, who are sort of finding their way through a Martian attack on Earth. So for those of you who don't know, um, where have you been fucking hiding if you don't know the plot from The War of the Worlds? But uh, set in contemporary France, this Anglo-French reimagining of H.G. Wells' classic in the style of The Walking Dead follows pockets of survivors forced to team up after an apocalyptic extraterrestrial strike. Um, I've been really impressed by it so far. Mm-hmm. So um, when I say an attack, I'm going to say an attack by Martians. It's actually not an attack by Martians. Um, interestingly, we've kind of, in the course, in the classic H.G. Wells story, the, the aliens who come to attack Earth come from Mars. Um, in this film, they come from some other really far away star, which kind of makes a little bit more sense considering we know a lot about Mars now. Mm-hmm. There are like rovers on Mars, there are like orbiting spacecraft, I think, from Mars. I believe that conspiracy stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so. You know, they're probably, it's probably, Mars probably invented the coronavirus with 5G. Uh, you heard it here first. Um, and um, it'd be a little, maybe it may be a little bit more ridiculous for stuff to come from Mars now, a little bit harder to believe, whereas, you know, 100 years ago, 130 years ago, and Wells wrote the book. Um, so we have this group of characters who we meet before the attack. The attack's actually carried out in a really interesting way. Mm. Um, it's, I'm not going to spoil it in case people want to watch it. Um, I will say this though, we are four episodes in and there are no giant robots on stilts. It's all by, done by a game of guess who. Sorry? It's all done by a game of guess who. It's, it comes down to a game of guess who. Um, was that a hungry, hungry hippos and they chose poorly. Um, <laughs> um but you know, uh, does he look like a bitch? Um, um, it, um, I mean, I, I'll pay, you know, as I said, four episodes in, maybe of a giant, if a, if a classic War of the Worlds, you know, tripods could well make an appearance. I'd be kind of surprised if I didn't, but in the classic book or in the, uh, the Tom Cruise film, if you want to go to that one, it's the tripods who do the lion's share of the going around and wiping people out. Mm. They do it a bit differently in this one. And so I found it interesting I said it was Walking Dead style. I mean, yeah, I guess it kind of is in the sense it's maybe a little bit more realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have, but we don't really have a, a Rick character here like you would in, say, The Walking Dead. And as I sort of said, we have these bands of different people who we've been following. Uh, we have, so Gabriel Byrne, as you mentioned, is probably the biggest star in this. He plays a scientist who um, figures out fairly early on what's going on with the the attack and manages to go rushes to try and find his um his estranged wife to try and keep her from being killed by the attack and manages to successfully do so and so he's making his way through the apocalypse with his ex-wife we have mm-hmm. a guy who was in france cheating on his wife who's now wandering around with some other french woman he's met we have a french scientist who's holed up with the army in a like a seti you know mm-hmm. so extraterrestrial you know but a big radio telescope type 
facilities doing shit. Um, you know, and we have a family wandering around London. We have a refugee, an African refugee who was smuggled into it. He was on his way to being smuggled into England during the middle of it. So we're a fairly interesting group of characters and we're slowly coming to get to know them a little bit and the world that they're experiencing. Um, I will say this, that um, the main threat of the aliens at this point in time is very evocative of some of the stuff that Black Mirror has done. Okay. I'm going to say more than that. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, So that's like, it's not a problem for me. Some people might bother to go, oh, hang on, didn't Black... It's like, it's like The Simpsons did it, you know, like, didn't Black Mirror do that? Um, but it's... It, it, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I, what I'm enjoying most of all is the edge to this show. Okay. Um, in that this is not an American TV show. Um, the problem with an American TV show is you're pretty sure you... I mean, obviously there are exceptions. Game of Thrones, to an extent... Um, uh, Walking Dead is, is one as well, but more often than not, something that was made by a, by a network, other than one of the big, you know, yeah. uh, cable networks, is going to be fairly predictable. It's going to, ha- it's not going to have much of an edge because you can't get away with much in American TV. Oh. You know, um, again, notable exceptions of it. Whereas I feel like in European television, it can be a little bit harder. So, in an early scene, we have a guy who's a woman, ha- well, our female scientist. Uh, grabs a child whose parent has been killed and is wandering around a a, a supermarket trying to avoid alien nasties and loses the child in the, in the fast and turns a corner and finds the child dead, killed by the aliens. Okay. Um, I have no doubt you can't kill children on American television as a rule, right? Obviously, exceptions aside, that child was so going to be surviving it if this was American. Mm. They didn't. They don't pull punches here, right? They are not pulling any punches. Some of this is quite gruesome, you know. Um, again, maybe not Walking Level, Walking Dead level gruesome, but you know, it's more gruesome than I expected. So, and you know what? I'm kind of enjoying that in the sense of like, I'm actually, you know, you're not afraid to tell the story you want to tell and tell the story how you think it should be told. Um, so. Um, I bring pretty much at the end of every episode, I'm like, fuck, I really want to download the rest of his show and just smash it. But I haven't been resisted the urge to do that to date. So I think that's a good advertisement for it. When it comes to television these days, there's not a lot of new shit being released um, uh, right now, for obvious reasons. Um, I was just looking at who was the writer-creator of this version of Lord of the Worlds, and it's a gentleman called Howard Overman. And edge that you were talking about i see it in some of his um other works like he was a writer on the misfit show which was a channel for production back in the uk the um original douglas adams Dirk gently that was um back in uh, 2010 not the max landis version which is interesting weird um and he is a writer on the future man as well the uh, man is um on SBS. I've watched one episode of that. Maybe I'll come back and talk about it in a future episode. Yeah. So you uh, definitely seem to like a bit more of that kind of real slash cutting, skirting that line kind of thing. Well, I'm a, I'm a fan of it. Um, it, it's it's doing it for me. Um, it, it's entertaining. It's kind of gruesome. It's kind of scary. Um, 
and it's a really interesting look at um at a new re reinvention of a story i would say it's more interesting much more interesting than the spielberg film which is you know, it's going about 15 years ago now but i found the spielberg film a little bit anemic um i hated it for so many reasons there were parts some of the visuals were fantastic it was a fantastic scene where they they stop at a level crossing and a train rooms roars past and the trains roaring the light with fire. Um, or was a scene where they try and drive a van through a crowd and they get jacked by their van their van, they let the guy take their van and stuff like that. But then it kind of like for me, my main problem for the Spielberg film if I recall is it just ends. Well, a, what, there's so many things where it just breaks entire logic. Like oh, his belligerent older son runs over the Hill. disappears for the whole movie and then he's just standing there at the house like yo what's up i got him he just turns up at the house at the end yeah, yeah. and then other things like um the fact that they said that they seeded these pods years ago and yet the aliens who we are told by morgan freeman's voice of all narrative voices that these are entities beyond our comprehension and intelligence. And that kind of stuff is like, really? No one goes, hey, you know what? Of all those people that we sent off to just see that planet Earth, they've all strangely died. Hmm, maybe we could have some kind of protection because, ooh, the common cold kills us there. But it's fucking stupid. Uh, yeah, I, they might have had to think about what they were doing before they decided to invade. Um, we could so, have so many pods. It's going to be great. This doesn't have a good rating. It has a 6.2 on IMDb, which oh. is lower than the Spielberg film, which is a 6.5. Um, so okay, that doesn't bode well. I mean, maybe future episodes will go down here. I honestly didn't know how many episodes were in series until i actually took looked it up on imdb just now i'm a little surprised at 16 i'm gonna kind of curious to see what they're going to um what they're going to do with that uh, moving forward but um uh time will tell um i would say it's free if you're in australia it's available on sbs on demand or it's airing i think thursday nights so you probably want to if you haven't been watching you're probably gonna going to want to jump on to um on demand and check it out on there first to get up to date i'm enjoying it it's good stuff Cool. Now, there's one more thing that I feel like, well, maybe two, two, two more things that we, I feel we should talk about. First up, just a quick one, because of our jokes about Guess Who and Hungry Hungry Hippos, it made me think about Bill and Ted's bogus journey where they play Battleship Against Death. You saved my Battleship. Yes, we have got a trailer for Bill and Ted 3. It's coming to On Demand. It is coming to On Demand. Have you watched the trailer? I've watched the first trailer. I think there might have been a second one I haven't caught up with. Yeah, so Thoughts? I thought it looked kind of depressing. Yeah. I, I'm going to watch it because I love the first two. Mm-hmm. But um, I was going to say, never before has a sequel done 30 years later been any good. But then there was Blade Runner 2049. Um, but very rarely... 
I mean, there's a film with great substance like Blade mm-hmm. Runner. There's a lot to work with. There really wasn't a lot of substance to the Bill and Ted films. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember like, how weird Keanu Reeves looks without a beard. Yeah. He's, um, it's, uh, look, I hope they pull it off. I really do. Uh, everyone loves Keanu. He seems like a cool guy. He's yep. a good actor. Oh, goodish. Uh, he does what he does well. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know if that get the, the character works anymore in his fifties or whatever it would be now. So forties, fifties, it just doesn't. The goofy sterner surfer type, who is Jennifer Knitter's wife, you know, like it just. Eh, I'm not hope. My hopes are set to. Yeah, my hopes are to low. I think that there are a few reasons why this is going streaming, and one of those is. Probably not going to do as well as they think with box office. In fact, it's probably going to do better on streaming because if man, I think a lot of places yeah. are still on lockdown. So, a first run, big name star film of brand recognition is probably yeah. going to get a lot of people to go. It's this of a football. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of trailers, uh, there was a new Kevin Smith trailer released this week. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't know. Cool. It's a new Kevin Smith horror film. Start called Kilroy Was Here. Oh. So there's one for you to... It'll give you two minutes of homework to do. It's got stars Chris Jericho. Okay. I don't know if it's just a cameo or whatever. My goodness. Kilroy Was Here. It looks awful. It looks oh, really, really, no. really, really bad. See, See I'm, I'm just holding out and waiting for his fucking... The third part of his Great White North saga. Moose Jaws. Yes! Where the fuck is Moose Jaws, Kevin Smith? Apparently it's still happening. Give it to me now. I want it. It's a stupid idea. It's been... Tusk wasn't good. Speaking of which, Tusk is the genesis of this podcast in a way. And and we are actually our unofficial sixth anniversary of this show, believe it or not. It was six years ago, roughly... Roughly this month, six years ago, that this nonsense started, uh, and it was because of Tusk. Yep. So that's probably the only good thing that did come out of Tusk. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it's been but downhill from there. To have something to do. <laughs> not, a, not a fan of um, uh, yoga hoses. I haven't had the bravery to watch the, the uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot because I've heard it's terrible. Um, I haven't watched that yet. I'm, I'm curious, but not that curious. Now, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was something that happened on Thursday last week, which was the big expose of the Xbox Series X. Ah, yes, yes. I guess you got up early and watched some of that. Yeah. So I saw on Facebook that you did not seem too impressed. Well, I'm an Xbox owner. I've only, I do have a PlayStation 4, but I've barely used it. Mm. Um, and. I guess I've been an Xbox owner. I've owned the original, I've owned the 360, and now I own the X-Bone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I'm kind of invested in the, in the ecosystem, right? I have mm-hmm. all, the, all my games on there and achievements and friends lists and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I was kind of... I, I haven't necessarily had a major problem with the lack of exclusives this, this, this generation because... You know, I've gone off and controversially, I've played The Last of Us and I thought it was kind of overrated. And mm-hmm. I played Spider Man and I kind of thought that was overrated. Um, and I've always usually found something to enjoy on Xbox. But mm. I hear it. I hear it. Like, like, I mean, I can, people, 
and people I respect tell them how amazing this story is in The Last of Us 2 and how good um, God of War 2 was and how good, you know, Horizon Zero Dawn is and stuff like that. And there is only on PlayStation these games. Um, and I wonder if it was on... PlayStation kind of annoys me. It's just it's different and it annoys me. So I don't have a lot of patience with it. I wonder if I might have had more patience with it if they were on Xbox. So I went into this kind of going, Xbox, no. Xbox have something to go for them. Game Pass is the best pro- game, best video game product on the market. Yes. Shit's all over anything PlayStation has for now. Uh, for now. Um, and But when it comes to actual games, come, you cannot argue PlayStation has it all over Xbox. Their first-party exclusives are garbage this, this generation. So they had to know this. They were, get, they were beaten hands down in the first-party exclusives um, this generation, and they've gone out and they've gone out and they've bought a bunch of studios as a result, and we're all sitting here thinking, they're going to bring something interesting to the table this time. Surely Microsoft aren't going to allow themselves to get beat that bad with the new generation coming up. They sure fucking did, and they got beat worse. Like, I um, don't agree with that. I, only moderately interesting game, well, of any note this week that came out in, that they showed us last week was Halo. I'm not a massive Halo fan. I played the first two. Thought it was okay. Never really was obsessed about it like some people are. Mm. That Halo game looks like shit. I mean, it looks ex- the graphics look like it's 360 generation level graphics. They do not. I mean, that was supposed to be the system seller. That's the thing that's really going to be there at launch. It should be going. They should have been showing us going. Wow, this new system graphics are going to blow you away. It looked last gen, not next gen. That was that was really disappointing. It looked, it kind of reminded me of the first couple of Halo games, which is fine if you're a big fan. I've seen a lot of people go, "Well, I really like those games." I'm like, "Fantastic, go play them." You know, you don't, you can go do that anytime. You don't need to do it. You don't need the new game to look exactly like the last one. Other than that, I saw a bunch of CGI trailers, very little actual gameplay footage. Mm. There was one game in there called Medium that looked all right. Um, oh, yeah. Other than that, they were like, and a lot of that looked like CGI trailers for stuff that ain't going to be there at launch in six months. So mm. there was nothing in there that made me go, cannot wait for that game. But um, unlike the PlayStation, I, you know, I, I'm not a PlayStation fan, but um, all the PlayStation people I know were like super excited by all the stuff that PlayStation showed them a week or two ago. Mm. Halo, sorry, Xbox had nothing. There was so nothing on show last week. I and I was, I couldn't help but see how fucking smart Xbox is, because they're creating a system, and because of Game Pass Ultimate, every single one of those games, whether you want to invest in them individually or not, if you are just spending fifteen dollars a month, you get all of those fucking games. So any parent, anyone who wants to get into video gaming. To buy a console is a big investment. In Australia, you're looking $600 at launch or something like that, probably. Um, and then you get one controller with that console. So that's Xbox or PlayStation. If you want to play multiplayer, then you have to buy another uh, controller. If you want to buy a game on PlayStation, that's going to be 80 or $90 for each of those games because PlayStation Now is not available in Australia. Although rumor is that it might come, I would be surprised if considering how Game Pass has proven to be a success, they don't bring it with the launch of the PS5. But as yet, it's not here. And it has been generally 
lambasted for not being a great service, not reliable service, especially compared to Xbox's platform. So for console plus a game, you're looking just at that, you're looking $700 layout versus Xbox. If you are upgrading, you pay $600 for the console and your Game Pass carries over. So all of those games that you've got on your Xbox X, uh, Xbox One, your 360, your original Xbox, they all come. You've got all of those games to play on it. It's designed apparently to improve all of those with speed and a little bit of graphic smoothing, that sort of stuff. Some of those games are just going to be automatically, they're going to have updates to make them 4K and make them look even better. So suddenly just on that initial investment, wow, that's awesome. That is mind-blowing. And for me, they had a bunch of games that really sung to me. Like, um, it was really disappointing that we didn't see actual gameplay. I totally agree with that. I think they needed to make one hell of a statement and they needed to show gameplay, not just CGI. But, you know, Ori and the Will of the Wisp is... The, the Ori series is amazing, and that just looks stunning. Um, the Outer Worlds update, the Peril on Gorgon, that looks really good fun. And is anybody going to buy a $600 console for a shitty indie game like Ori and the Wisps? They are yeah, not buying it's a not game. People are not buying a $600 console for some pissy little windy indie game. But it's a nice bonus if your pissy little indie game comes. You've already got it. If you're on Game Pass, because it's on Game Pass. My argument is that people aren't going to go and buy a console because of Game Pass. I agree 100% Game Pass is amazing value. I love being a member of it. But when a kid says he wants a new console of his mum, he's going to say he wants to play play the hottest game, the sexiest game, the most high-profile games with his friends. Those games aren't on Xbox. The new person who wants to go out and buy, and, and, you know, our age who wants to go out and buy a new console, probably wants to go and play the game, but all their cool friends, the cool new game, but really the Ghost of Tsushima kind of game. Again, PlayStation only. The fact that you can get a hundred of shit is still shit, and that's what, that's what Xbox is selling us. They are selling us a hundred shit is shit. So okay, if you look, if you, it's basically a funny, funky, and mildly interesting collection of tiny little indie games. That might be available at launch. Dude, at Halo. No. you are that, you're just so wrong. Have you, you you know what games are on Game Pass? I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, those games are all. Most of the games that are on Game Pass are also on PlayStation. They're not necessarily. No. I mean, yeah, most of them are. I mean, most of the big ones. No, the like, third party ones, yes, yeah. because that's it. But yeah, I'm yeah. saying, if you, what are you going to play? What are you going to make your six hundred dollar decision? I've got. I can buy a PlayStation, I can buy an Xbox. I can play all these amazing, hot, the hottest games in town, the hottest games in the world right now are available only on PlayStation. Oh. Or I can play, they can have a reasonably a good price deal to play a bunch of two-year-old stuff um, for $10 a month on Xbox, plus Halo, and some indie games that are first-party exclusives that no one's terribly excited. A few people, very few people, are very, very excited about playing those sort of small indie games you need you need you want to sell a 600 console you need a fucking battering ram you need the new horizon zero dawn game you need a fucking 
Naughty Dog on board, you, those sort of things. You need that kind of level of game to convince someone to pay $600 for a console. And I just don't see how, and I agree, it, they are very pro-consumer, and that's an amazing move. But to be, it's very easy to be pro-consumer when you've got not very much to sell, and they didn't have much to sell me there last week. I, I'm, sorry, I'm just talking personally. I really love it. I love, um, I was always a big fan of Fable, and I'm looking forward to that. Oh, if, that's, if that's available at launch, different story. It won't be, though. I don't really care about it because I don't have time to play all my games anyway. So, for gen- no, no, we're talking. I'm talking generally here. I'm trying to talk broadly, other than apart from you know my personal. No, I, mean, I, 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 mean, I think it's exactly why everyone is saying PlayStation beat Microsoft. I can absolutely see that because PlayStation make blockbuster games that they promote as blockbuster deluxe things. The problem for me just on those games is they're all very similar aesthetically it's that kind of oh we're taking uh video games seriously we are taking it to the next level of narrative storytelling which i appreciate but i also think they're having fun which is why you're a nintendo gamer though right that's that's really what nintendo do well like they they are in their own league that's why they they continue to succeed so well nintendo is they go we're not going to do what those other guys do yeah. We're going to we're not gonna try and beat them on graphics and you know hard edge storytelling. They're just gonna make fun little games and they That's because... why it's always been a disaster anytime the two big dogs in the gaming community have tried to go for the same goal. And Xbox and PlayStation are pushing power, pushing the graphical fidelity of their game. Okay. But you're not actually doing anything unique. You're not putting your own spin on these games. PlayStation and Nintendo, we're just going to pull down the narrative group. Xbox are trying to be as broad as they possibly can. And by doing that, they're kind of watering down their own content because they're not, not any of their games have got a Microsoft identity. PlayStation. No, that's true. But nobody's ever had that except for Nintendo. And that's Nintendo's well, unique. Because really, though, Sega? Yeah, so especially in the Dreamcast era when they were fucking going around the, the toilet hole, um, they were doing that fucking weird shit and it was amazing. It, and everyone looked back at the Dreamcast and thought it had some of the best fucking inventive games ever. Nintendo was doing their own thing and at that point, during then, that was the GameCube era and the GameCube had some awesome games. Because Nintendo make awesome games, they don't necessarily make amazing consoles. But at that point, it was PlayStation Two was the ultimate Trojan horse of being the cheapest DVD player on the market. And they started bringing in oh, it's a full motion animation for Final Fantasy Two, just which they did in PlayStation One, and then they just boom, they doubled the power. And everyone was blown away by the graphical fidelity of it. Nintendo had better, better graphics, and it's still, oh, this feels like a Nintendo game. It's awesome. They, they had kind of three distinct ideologies. And then ever since then, it's been Nintendo doing their own thing, the Wii, the Wii U, which is a failure, which PlayStation has been every year focused and focused and focused and focused. And it has bred this success and has bred a kind of scary fan base of just mania about that game. 
Whereas Xbox, they came onto the scene after the Dreamcast, planning themselves to be the most powerful, the most dominant force straight out of the park. And they did a pretty good run for the Xbox, but Halo was the defining game. Gears of War, I really enjoyed the Gears of War games. Um, and then it's sort of like, okay, Project Gotham Racing, and then it's just been those three, and then Project Gotham disappeared, and Playground Games came in and did the Forza series. And it's like, they don't really have their own identity of what is... I, I would 100% agree like. with that. And it's really, really, really disappointing as an Xbox gamer mm. that they've decided to have somehow let this one slip, and I hope someone gets fired as a result. Because it's, it was coming two years ago. Anybody who'd seen what was going on should have seen this coming. And that's why we were a bit surprised. And they, they yeah. bought these studios. And yeah. we were thinking, what, what the fuck have they been doing yeah. for two years? What have these people been doing? Like, I understand COVID's been around for the last few months. But why have they not gone to them and gone, it, you know, it's very obvious when you see the success of, of what, as you sort of said, PlayStation have um, a well-tried path for success now. Now, you're right, maybe Xbox have gone, we don't want to play in the same space, and to some degree they haven't, in the sense that they've got to go really hard on being pro-consumer, which will get them a long way. If they could, if they could marry that with a, a property or an IP or something, or a, a killer app, so to speak, yeah. something that makes people really want to buy your console, with the pro-consumer attitude, I don't think PlayStation can compete. But as it is, they've dropped the ball completely in half, the most important half of that equation for me. You know, I think what PlayStation is telling us is people do very much still like a single-player narrative game. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be fucking multiplayer everything, and they, you know, full of microtransactions and shit. Obviously, there's a place for that. EA's making money still, but your battering ram, your, your ticket into people's living room, next to, underneath their television... You know, even with all your funky shit you're doing in Project X Cloud, you oh. need to have the killer app. And I'm so dis- I was so disappointed last week that, as I said, there are all CGI um, trailers which said to me none of them are ready, anywhere near ready to be shown. Because why would you show a CGI trailer if you had gameplay to show us? They obviously didn't for a lot of those um, games. Um, it says to me they're a long way off. And how someone could have greenlit that Halo game and gone, yeah, this will do is mind-boggling. It looked like shit. Uh, I know a lot of people are saying, it'll look better, it'll look better, it'll look better in six months. If that's as good as it looks six months out, I don't see a huge amount of improvement. I looked at that Halo stuff. I've never been a Halo fan. And it looked like the the gameplay that we saw of that, it reminded me very much of how the first Halo opened. And it also reminded me of how empty that first Halo area felt, considering... They were making a big deal with the draw distance and things like that. It feels empty. It it feels like oh, we, we can't put we can't populate it with people or things to do because then the frame rate will be fucked. There's no point in having the prettiest game in the world if the only thing you can do is travel through empty, barren wasteland where there's nothing, and then you get to an, uh, like an action spot. And then it moves on. At least with like Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, it's designed to feel empty because it is essentially a post-apocalyptic game. And as you're going around, you see pockets of life and there's things to do and the world 
feels all around it. This it's a different like... type of game as well. Being an RPG, yeah. wandering through a large empty world in RPG isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, a yeah. large empty sterile world in a first-person shooter mm-hmm. um, doesn't work quite as well, or a third-person shooter as um, as, um, as as Halo can be as well. Um, so it, it, yeah, it was. So I was massively disappointed. I wanted them to see. There was some some of them. I mean, they had the announcement sort of CGI doohickey for State of the K three, which um, mostly I was surprised, surprised about that because uh, like, the second one sucked. Um, I was very disappointed by the second one because it was in development for such a long time. It had a lot more grunt behind it in terms of money, and they really dropped. They really yeah. dropped the ball for second one. But I mean, apparently, word in the street is that that is in very early development at this point in time, so it will not be ready at launch. So, but I'll be curious to see what it looks like when it goes live. But no one's going out and buying a six hundred dollar console for State of the Cave again. Like it's, you, you need a major property to get us something to make people go, "Wow, I want to, I have to play that game." And the only place I can play it is Xbox. Because you're right, back in the day, Halo came bundled with the original Xbox, yeah, and it was a great game. It was groundbreaking at the time. That's the kind of thing you need, and I'm just shocked and disappointed that they've really seemed ill-prepared for... Uh, from what I've heard, is they I seriously do not want to go out any later than PlayStation. They don't want to give them a head start. No. So they've almost been rushed to the table from the sounds of it. I There, there were a couple of games that stood out to me more to do with the... Um, Kind of the legacy of the studios rather than necessarily what I saw because it was all CGI. But um, I always am going to give where it could go. And so their game, Everwild, looked interesting to me. The art style looked cool. I got a little bit of a Princess Mononoke kind of vibe to it. It looks like it's potentially going to be like a four player sport thing with a bit of that kind of RPG element to it, which is right up my alley. But no one knows fucking anything about it, and it's not going to be there in November when the console launches. That's for damn sure. Um, the Outer World Caroline Walking that looks really good. That's coming to the Xbox um, that I've already got, so I will have that game eventually when I get the Series X. But it looks fun. I've been enjoying um, what uh, what the fuck is there? Uh, Obsidian, yeah. The major kind of world I've been enjoying it generally. Obsidian, and because Obsidian is now a first party Microsoft studio, their new fantasy RPG avowed is a big one because Obsidian are the same people that did like the spin off um, story for New Vegas at Fallout. They're getting, you know, synonymously. And avowed looks so fucking styring. It's amazing. And because of last year, Bethesda's E3 conference, they said Skyrim 6 is in development, but we don't know when it's coming out. If the Valve comes out before then, and Obsidian, who had a successful spin off Bethesda game, knock it out of the park, are Bethesda going to have a similar situation with Fallout? Where it came out and was like, okay, they built it in a bubble and it doesn't look as good as everything else. Because this that came out at the same time as The Witcher, which just looked better, had more, everything was better in it than you regard. But that kind of game is near and dear to my heart, so I'm curious about it for sure. Um, medium, that looked very interesting. 
Um, I'm a fan of um, the guys that make Steamworld games and then you game the Dunk. I'll always give it a try just because I've enjoyed their stuff. Um, and Fable. That's, that's it, but I'm in no rush to get it. But at the same time, the games that were showcased in the PlayStation 5 reveal, they were not interesting to me. So I am very... I'm, I'm actually at the point where I'm considering buying a PlayStation 5 instead because uh, the only thing that's keeping me on Xbox is the fact that all my shit's there. Like, um, I they've really given me... If I was giving me absolutely no reason to stick with them at this point in time, it's just... Uh, uh, yeah, how I could um, I just how I could have dropped the ball so bad. I really watched it going, really, really. This is the best you've got. I can't believe they didn't have a moment where they revealed that they had made a deal with Marvel or with DC to get an exclusive like Sony and Spider-Man. That whole fucking units because it's a successful game. I cannot believe. That especially considering in the last few weeks, um, the creators of the Arkham games is apparently up to play. Why the fuck? Rockstar Games. Oh, not not Rockstar. Yeah. Um, it's um, Rocksteady, I think. Yeah. yeah. Why did Microsoft not go up to this? It's a blank check. Join us. Bring a Batman game to our system. Or bring a Superman game to our system. Or go to Marvel and Disney and say, hey, we want to make a fucking. Doctor Strange game or something, something that is theirs and that has that cachet that's going to make people go, oh, fuck, really? It's, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I might get one. It's, I like Game Pass, like I said, I talked about oh. last week. I've probably sunk an extra 40 hours this week into um, No Man's Sky, which I got with, again, with PlayStation Time exclusive. Um, just un- luckily, unfortunately for them, it was sucked at, at launch. Um, it, um, but you know, I wouldn't have discovered that if it wasn't for Game Pass because his bad reputation would have preceded it. I'd never give it a go. Yeah. I, I think Microsoft are doing so many things right, but the last element that they needed to add in just to really click into a really hot, hot be a real hot property, they just got wrong. So yeah. disappointing. I'll be happily proven wrong if some of that shit turns out to be pretty good. If some of those games are available at launch, it's going to make life a lot easier. Hmm. I the, the rumor is that there's going to be a second round of this for Xbox, a little bit closer to their launch. I think they're doing one every month. I hope so because the vast majority of the internet are left disappointed. I think they've got a lot of ground to make up, and if they can keep the conversation going and consistently improving it, maybe they can turn it around. But at this point, I think the general consensus is PlayStation are going to win another round with Generation Gear. I, I think so. Um, they, they, they don't seem to have learned their lesson, and unfortunately for them, um, again, if if a year after launch things have moved and mm. Fable's out, and they've got a some other exclusive that are all starting to land only on Microsoft, I think a lot of people will have already made their choice. Yeah, and not many people can afford to do both. Uh, or they want to. I mean, I do, but I have both, but I choose not to do both because I find. It's annoying to switch to you know a, a new console. You just need to have a controller that works on all of them, so that X button is in the same fucking spot. It could do. It just, it just doesn't feel right to me. I just like the ecosystem of Xbox. I'm used to it, mm-hmm. and I don't want to have to pay for a second, a second live stream. In second, I don't. You have to have to pay for 
for um, the PlayStation multiplayer Bizzo 2, I think. Um, yeah. So I don't really want to have to pay for that twice for something I'm never going to use or very rarely. It's, it, yeah, it, uh, it's, it just doesn't feel right to switch to a new a new ecosystem when yeah. I like the one... I like so much about the one I already have, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's... The, the, I guess for, for me, after seeing the PlayStation and the Xbox reveals of these new cutting-edge generation consoles, like, yeah, I can wait. Yeah, and there's nothing in there that's going to make you rush out and buy one, but I might do it anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> we need entertainment down Oh, you know, like it's, it's you know, buying things I don't need is one of the few forms of amusement I get these days. <laughs> I have been toying with, because Ghosts of, Shusta, Ghosts of Tsushima looks awesome. And I do want to experiment with VR. And the PlayStation stuff is arguably the best way of getting relatively good quality. So but it's still to get the console and to get the hand, uh, the headset, and to get some games, you're looking up a thousand dollars out. Yeah, it ain't. It's not. It's not an easy. That's what I mean. Like some people, most people are not going to buy one and they're going to stick to it. Mm-hmm. They're not going to. But most people don't have a luxury yeah. of um of being able to afford both. Um, it's just it's not okay. Yeah. So I think if if um Microsoft. Don't get them at the launch. Mm-hmm. I think that basically gives PlayStation an unassailable lead. Yeah, and there's there would be nothing worse than having the PlayStation and Nintendo. Yep. That, I mean, yeah. I'm and I think I'm in a unique position to call, considering I have all three mm-hmm. of the uh, consoles, major consoles from this generation. Yeah. But. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how things shape up. And honestly, I don't know whether Xbox would be able to handle not a failure because the launch of the Xbox One was a resounding failure. Right, they did. They got everything wrong about that. Like we talked about last week with the, you know, it must be always online and you can't share games and. You, uh, it, you no, know it's bad, bad when without seeing each other's presentations for E3, Xbox had theirs and then PlayStation had theirs, and just they, the way that they filmed it was, oh, game sharing? It's literally this. You pass it to them. And they were just trolling them without even knowing how badly they were going to fucking troll them. Uh, and it's interesting that they've gone to the other extreme, like I said, being very pro-consumer now. Yeah. Um, which is good. I'm glad about that. Unfortunately, it's the other part of it they still haven't got right yet. Yeah. Have we got yeah. much else? Yeah. But um, anything else you want to talk about? I or think we... that's it. I think it's a fair show for the, uh, the, yeah. the five people and the Russian bots. <laughs> well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for all of you who joined in. Um, this has been episode 75 of the Armchair Producers. We talked about uh, Starship Troopers, and next week we are going to be talking about Highlander. And so, which there is going to be an extra week delay because Travis is moving. I'm moving so, house next week, so we will be probably off the air next Wednesday, but we'll be back to Highlander a week afterwards, assuming my internet's up and running. Yes, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Until then, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Please stay safe. Please wear a mask. 
please don't go to work unless you really have to. You, for everyone who may listen to this later on, are not an essential fucking item, so go home. There you go. You heard it first. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Good night.